and welcome to the podcast edition of Scripps 5 Must Know Things, this time for the Business Week ended 26th November 2021. This is Ian Haydock. This time, prospects and plans for J&J's pharma and oncology businesses. China looks more inward under new policies. An important US approval for Takeda. And Moderna's co-founder shares tips on innovation. Johnson & Johnson's pharmaceutical unit is on pace to continue generating above-market growth through 2025, with a goal to become a $60 billion pharmaceutical company within that time frame, according to Pharmaceuticals Worldwide Chairman Jennifer Taubert. Reaching that goal would represent substantial 32% growth over the company's pharmaceutical revenues of $45.57 billion in 2020. J&J currently ranks as the fourth largest pharma company in the world based on 2020 pharma revenues behind Novartis, Roche and AbbVie. We are confident we will be able to deliver transformational medical innovation that enables this level of sustainable above-market growth, Talbot said during a pharmaceutical business overview on 18th November. Jessica Merrill writes that J&J's management team held the pharma overview as it has typically done every two years to outline key growth drivers and financial expectations. This year's event coincides with some other substantial corporate announcements, including the appointment of a new incoming CEO and plans to separate the pharma and device businesses from consumer health within two years. The company outlined key new drugs it hopes to file within the targeted timeline. It expects to file 14 novel therapeutics by 2025, that could generate more than $1 billion each in peak sales, and five with as much as $5 billion in peak sales potential. It highlighted 19 potential drugs that could be candidates to position J&J to meet the goal. That objective includes two new drugs already approved in 2021, the multiple sclerosis drug Ponvory and Ribrevant, a novel bispecific antibody for certain non-small cell lung cancer patients, as well as the potential new cell therapy Siltacel, which is pending at the US FDA for refractory multiple myeloma treatment with action expected in February. Siltacel, for which the company has unveiled a new brand name, Carvicti, is one of the five drugs Jane Day believes could eventually deliver peak revenues of more than $5 billion. Several products that the company said back in 2017 that it hoped to file by 2021 have been delayed but remain on the updated target list including the PARP inhibitor Nyraparib for prostate cancer and the Orexin-2 receptor antagonist Celtorexant for major depressive disorder. Staying with J&J, Jessica also writes that its Janssen Pharmaceutical Unit has a long heritage and established commercial position in multiple myeloma, where the company is now trying to develop curative regimens but is also working to expand more broadly in solid tumour indications, including non-small cell lung cancer, bladder cancer and earlier stage prostate cancer. Janssen Global Oncology Therapeutic Area Head Peter Lebowitz talked to Scrip about the company's broad oncology strategy ahead of a pharma investor day on 18th November. Oncology is an important prong in the company's plan to become a $60 billion pharmaceutical company by 2025, up from $45.57 billion in 2020. Within J&J's pharmaceutical portfolio, cancer medicines are an enormous growth driver for the company, with oncology solidly the second largest pharma franchise behind immunology and eclipsing therapeutic areas like cardiovascular metabolic, 
neuroscience and infectious disease. In 2020, J&J's oncology revenues grew 16% to $12.37 billion, despite a challenging year for cancer drugs due to COVID-19. The multiple myeloma therapy Darzalex is the high-growth pillar of the oncology business, while other key brands include the prostate cancer drugs Zytiga, which lost US exclusivity, and Earliada, as well as Imbruvica, which is partnered with AbbVie. In the near term, J&J is awaiting US FDA action on a new treatment for refractory multiple myeloma, the BCMA-targeting CAR-T therapy Silvacel, which recently had a delay to the review deadline from November to 28th February 2022. The launch will mark J&J's first cell therapy. Despite being a substantial near-term commercial opportunity, one J&J has targeted as a potential multi-billion dollar blockbuster. Initial launch expectations are tempered because the therapeutic category is competitive and because there's an industry-wide shortage of viral vectors used to deliver cell and gene therapies, which is limiting production. The good thing for us, we are in the midst of establishing our own lentivirus supply and we are rapidly ramping up our capacity to make CAR-T, Lebowitz told Scrip. It will take a year to get to full speed, but hopefully we will get there within this first launch year. Another two of the five potential big winners mentioned by J&J are also in oncology. One is a combination of ribavant with the EGFR inhibitor lazotinib in frontline EGFR mutant NSCLC, which is being tested in phase three. And the other is a potential new treatment for localized bladder cancer, where the innovation is centered on a novel delivery device that can deliver a cytotoxic agent directly to the site of the cancer. In China's 14th five-year plan for the 2020-25 period, President Xi Jinping outlined a new and bold economic policy move, moving away from a four-decade policy of fundamental reforms and opening to the idea of dual circulation, comprising domestic consumption and international trade and investment. Brian Yang writes that, unlike the previous focus on export-driven production, under which the country became known as the world's workshop, The new policy prioritizes rebalancing in the home market while remaining open to the flow of external goods and funds. The shift is a direct response to the widespread global economic downturn and ongoing US-China trade tensions. These strategic goals are to rely more on driving supply-side demand, encourage domestic collaboration and reduce the impacts of international economic risks. However, the change, when announced, immediately put on alert foreign corporate players in China, where many have now operated for decades. Will it mean that multinationals are no longer welcomed? The dual circulation policy will indeed require companies to go more local in China. Claudia Susmuth Dikerhoff, who's a board member of Swiss Pharma and Diagnostics Group Hoffman La Roche, told a panel discussion of the Asia Summit on Global Health, held in Hong Kong and virtually on 24th November. Localize more in China, advised the executive, who said the policy clearly indicates China is focusing more on building and expanding local supply chains. Roche Diagnostics has already taken some steps in this direction, opening a manufacturing plant in Suzhou and a drug innovation center in Shanghai, while a local innovation accelerator initiative is planned in the next quarter, she noted. Another component is pharma innovation, which is already on the rise in China and indicates the growing importance of homegrown R&D. 
In 2020, for example, 44 innovative new drugs were approved in the country, of which 17 were locally developed. More companies are pursuing an in-China-for-China development strategy, and some are even choosing China as their first launch market, in turn indicating progress in the regulation and market acceptance of such products domestically. Some smaller foreign biotech companies are also particularly eager to gain access to the Chinese market, even if this means choosing a non-local partner. In one notable example, US firm Fibrogen linked with AstraZeneca to launch its chronic kidney disease anemia drug Roxadustat in China, where the HIF-PH inhibitor had its first global launch. But there was a view at the Hong Kong meeting that, despite the rapid developments and innovation spur, the policy of dual circulation won't substantially change the Chinese government's price-cutting approach to the healthcare sector. In a bid to make innovation affordable, Beijing has regularly resorted to volume-based procurement mechanisms and annual price negotiations to pressure manufacturers to cut product prices, and these reductions can routinely exceed 50%. This has caused many international farmers to walk away from procurement rounds. Susmuth Dickerhoff suggested the need for expanded access to care should not rely solely on price cutting. We work with the government for additional insurance and not just the government asking for very low prices, she told participants in the conference. We should come together to make innovation accessible through innovative insurance schemes, she proposed. Takeda's Live 10 City, which is Marie Bavia, is being rolled out in the US for patients with a common and serious post-transplant infection, cytomegalovirus, that is refractory to treatment. Cleared by the US FDA on 23rd November, Mary Jo Lafler writes that the antiviral is approved for adults and paediatric patients 12 and older with post-transplant CMV refractory to treatment with or without genotypic resistance with gancyclovir, valgancyclovir, sidofovir or foscarnet. The approval is Decada's second new molecular entity approved by the FDA this year, following on from exclusivity for certain non-small cell lung cancer patients in September. Together, the two approvals indicate that the Japanese firm is making some progress on its Wave 1 R&D goals, despite some misses like the Phase 3 failure of bevonidistat in high-risk myelodysplastic syndromes. A third drug was expected to be approved in 2021, which was eohilia for the treatment of localised esophageal inflammation caused by eosinophilic esophagitis. But Takeda is waiting on FDA action after the review was delayed. The company laid out its near and long-term R&D goals to investors back in 2019 after completing the acquisition of Shire, labelling opportunities that could be approved through 2024 as Wave 1 and those that could be approved in 2025 or later as Wave 2. Liftensity is one of the drugs that came to Takeda through the merger with Chaya, which was completed in early 2019. The approval of the new drug was widely anticipated after the FDA's Antimicrobial Drugs Advisory Committee voted unanimously in favour of a broad approval in October. Liftensity works differently from existing treatments, as it's the first and only antiviral agent that targets and inhibits the PUL97 protein kinase and its natural substrates, resulting in inhibition of viral DNA replication, encapsidation and nuclear egress. It's also available orally. In announcing the approval, the company said the new drug redefines the management of post-transplant CMV 
with the approval of the first and only treatment for transplant patients with CMV that is refractory with or without resistance, a significantly underserved and vulnerable patient community. Finally, Wikipedia defines scientific temper as a modest, open-minded temper, ever ready to welcome new light, new knowledge, new experiments, even when their results are unfavourable to preconceived opinions and long-cherished theories. However, the scientific community doesn't always exhibit this temper, said Moderna co-founder Robert Langer during a session to share tips on accelerating innovation at the Global Innovation Summit 2021, which was organised by industry body the Indian Pharmaceutical Alliance, or IPA. It's important for innovators to realise that conventional wisdom is not always correct, The Massachusetts Institute of Technology professor, who has over 1,000 global patents issued or pending and technology licensed or sub-licensed to over 300 companies, should know, writes Viva Ravi. After a doctorate in 1974, the chemical engineer did postdoctoral work at Boston Children's Hospital with a surgeon, Judah Folkman. When he arrived, Folkman was trying to isolate compounds to impede angiogenesis with the objective of slowing down the growth of tumours. At Folkman's behest, Langer set to work developing a delivery system to deliver angiogenic inhibiting molecules. Eventually, Langer was able to make microspheres or nanospheres, and in a paper in Nature, Folkman and Langer showed for the first time that even nucleic acids could be released. Their path-breaking discovery led to the development of a new class of drugs called angiogenesis inhibitors. At 27, when Langer presented this work at a scientific meeting, I thought I did okay and older scientists would want to encourage me, but that was not the case, he said. His first nine grants rejected, he began applying for positions in chemical engineering departments, but no department in the world would offer me a position, he said. At an MIT faculty dinner, when a senior scientist heard Langer's concept for drug delivery, he blew a cloud of smoke in my face and said, you better start looking for another job. But I just kept trying. Finally, a bioessay showed the desired results with Folkman and Langer publishing their findings in Science magazine. I wrote in Science in 1976, 45 years ago, and it still took another 28 years from this paper before the first blood vessel inhibitor was approved by FDA, he noted. Langer, who now oversees one of MIT's largest laboratories and has helped found over two dozen technology startups, urged listeners at the virtual IPA conference to do things that will have a very big impact on the world as opposed to just incremental research. Following the narration of more travails during his scientific journey, he said, If your idea is important, you can expect lots of criticism. I've certainly had that. And I think everybody who's done science in a significant way or invented things, they'll get a lot of criticism. And that's unfortunate, but that's just the way the world works. That's all for this time. Thanks for listening. These stories in full are linked in the article accompanying this podcast and are just a fraction of those published by Script over the past week. Sign in to access all of our content or sign up for a free trial to see what you're missing. Bye for now.